You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Level 3 restrictions came into effect all over the country at midnight as part of Operation Fanacht. Hundreds of Garda roadblocks are in place to encourage people to stay in their own counties and to undertake journeys only if they're essential, for example, for work or to get to school. Our reporter Ailish Sheehy has been out and about this morning. Ailish, where are you? What have you seen this morning? Good morning, Mary, from the promenade in Laytown overlooking the Irish Sea here at the moment, and the tide is on its way out. It's a cool 8 degrees here, but it's a beautiful, clear morning. Now, the seaside village of Laytown, Mary, in County Meath, is located about 30 miles north of Dublin, and the Laytown, Bettystown, Mornington, and Donnacarney area in East Meath has a population of over 12,000 people, and many of those are commuters who travel to Dublin on a daily basis either by car or by train or by bus. There are two schools here in the village. The post, the primary school is um, Skull on Spurred Nave and it's situated a short distance from Kalosh de Nahinsha, which is the post-primary school and that caters for over a thousand students. Now, the car park across the road from the train station this morning, which is normally full to the brim, is nowhere near that today. And um, there are plenty of cars on the road, however, and even at six o'clock this morning, there was a steady flow of traffic in nearby Julianstown and that's heading towards the M1. Now I haven't seen any Garda checkpoints so far this morning but I would imagine that they would be on the um, entrance to the M1 where they were situated um, when the country was in lockdown. Now these people in Laytown earlier I spoke to and they gave me their thoughts on moving to level 2 from level 2 to level 3 restrictions from today and the impact it will have on their daily lives. I'm travelling from Laytown to the Matter Hospital in Dublin. I'm lucky it actually takes about 45 minutes, which isn't too bad. At the moment, I have one daughter doing homeschooling because of two positive cases. My second daughter is likely to be out of work, but she's lucky in a sense. She's doing her college work from home, so she'll have that to keep her going. And hopefully in the next three weeks, things will change. My third daughter is in Trinity. She will not be allowed in unless she's doing research work and it'll be working from home also for her. It does mean you can't have people to the home because of three daughters. They have different uh, friend groups so you can't be entertaining. They're lucky they have each other basically. I'm a bus driver for Bus Erin so we've kept going all throughout the last six months even in the height of the pandemic. My wife who works for a GP, they have noticed a big trend in phone calls or whatever or queries regarding the COVID-19 yeah we do as a couple we do miss going out I'm actually off on a week's holidays next week and so is herself you can't even go for a meal or you go for a drink or unwind or even even have that little getaway me personally I think not going to level 5 was a huge cop out to me we take the hard medicine now help the businesses get back before Christmas I wouldn't have great faith in the government since the new government administration was formed they're not taking the hard choices We've discussed it at home and me and my wife said, well, what difference really does it make going from level two to level three? Where are you commuting from today? Daytown to Donna Bay. We're a scaffold, working construction, so I have to go to work. Maybe they should have left left the schools closed. They came back to school, everything went up. No one's enforcing them rules anyway, so you'll see this weekend, they'll be off licence, be up to the roof, house parties, no one's enforcing them. I live here, and when they lock down level three in Dublin, they're coming from Balbriggan to here to drink here on the train. Now we're stopping at the train station, so what's I mean? They're coming from. We're, we're coming from Balbriggan to here, which is County Mead, to drink 
here because the pubs in Dublin were closed. And so there's nobody stopping at the train station asking them what they were coming here for. So I mean, did the rules work? I don't think so. From Laytown to Swords, I can't work from home. My, my job, I cannot work from home. No, I don't think people are doing enough. People don't respect the government laws. They are just doing whatever they want, but the government is doing its best. Ayla Sheehy reporting there from Laytown in County Meath. Here to tell us more now, our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Mary. Will you give us some idea uh, of the scale of this guard operation that's now being put in place across the country? Yeah, well, the guard that you're saying it's all about encouraging people to adhere to the increased public health measures to stop the, the spread of the coronavirus. Now, anybody who's on who's been on the roads in recent weeks will know that traffic has been coming back to pre-COVID levels. The guard, you say, was back to 80% of the levels it was before the lockdown in March, particularly in and around Dublin. Thousands of people were travelling into the city from the surrounding towns and counties. Uh, we heard Ailish there talking about thousands of commuters from Laytown. Uh, the figures from, for example, Port Leash, 7,000 people uh, come into Dublin every day from Gorey and County Wexford, 2,500. So Operation Fonacht has now been underway since midnight uh, to discourage people from making non-essential journeys. It's expected to cost at least 15 million euro in Garda overtime. And what we have is 2,500 Garda, 132 checkpoints all over the, all over the country particularly at uh, regional and uh, national arterial routes. The main routes around Dublin, for example, the N1, the N2, the N4, the N7, the N11. There are checkpoints this morning at Finglas, outside Bray, at the Black Church, uh, at Balbriggan uh, and at Lucan. Uh, these checkpoints uh, in and around Dublin are outward bound at the moment. Uh, the M50 is also being policed by mobile patrols. Uh, this this lockdown and this guard operation, Fonacht, is different from the first time uh, because lots of businesses and workplaces uh, remain open. Schools are also open and people can travel for educational reasons and they can bring their children to school. Uh, however, uh, most people uh, don't go on the main, main roads or certainly not a large percentage of people would, would be bringing children to school on the main, main roads or motorways. Uh, delays at checkpoints will be longer, the guardies say, this time around uh, as they assess whether people can travel or not. Uh, and delays can be accepted, del- uh, can be expected, they say. Delays are building up around Dublin at the moment, around Lucan, Bray and regionally in Galway and Limerick. The Gardaí say, however, it's not too bad uh, on the roads this morning. Many people appear to have heeded the warnings and remain are remaining within their counties. The government hasn't given the Gardaí any additional powers to enforce the new restrictions, so if people don't comply, uh, the Gardaí can really only engage, educate and encourage them to comply. But they do say as well, however, they have lots of laws. They can pull people over. Uh, they can delay them significantly at these checkpoints if they need to. They can check the car for anything from tax insurance, tyres, roadworthiness. But they really don't think uh, they'll have to do that and from what's what's been going on this morning uh, there's no evidence uh, people are uh, more or less mm. complying at the moment. Mm. Stay with that issue though of being able to encourage rather than enforce. Uh, what's the view of rank and file Gardaí to being sent out on these roadblocks now without the backing of real real power behind them? Well the guard the Gardaí say the approach is non, non-legalistic. They want to bring people with them. They don't want to be seen as enforcers. They don't want to be uh, enforcing law I mean, the Garda Commissioner gave a press conference yesterday afternoon. He says he's confident people will comply and there is some evidence of that this morning. Uh, they say they don't need the new laws to enforce the restrictions. The voluntary compliance method has worked before. Uh, hun- there were hundreds of thousands of engagements previously and they only had to use previous emergency legislation 342 times. Uh, so he says the number of people uh, that need this enforcement is, is actually in the round quite low. Um, <clears throat> the Association of Guards and Sergeants and Inspectors, however, said it was quite sceptical of the approach. I mean, the General Secretary, Antoinette Cunningham, said Dublin uh, and Donegal had been at level three 
three for the past number of weeks uh, and the approach hadn't worked there. However, the difference is that this is certainly more intensive this morning uh, than it had been in Dublin and Donegal over the past number of weeks. Um, so we, we we have to give it some time to see uh, whether it does work or not. The rank and file guard, the, uh, the, the, uh, represented by the GRA, uh, they're concerned about uh, you know the reasonable interpretation of people's right uh, to travel. Um, the Gardaí, Gardaí headquarters feel it'll it'll work itself out. That the Gardaí at checkpoints will know uh, who is actually um, uh, carrying out an essential journey and who is not. Paul Reynolds, there, our crime correspondent. Now, the National Public Health Emergency Team did not repeat its weekend recommendation for Level 5 restrictions when they met yesterday. Later today, the Cabinet Subcommittee will consider stricter enforcement measures for Level 3 and as of Wednesday night, 27 people are in intensive care with COVID-19 and the HSE Chief Paul Reid says the health service at the moment is challenged but not overwhelmed. Dr Colm Henry, the Chief Clinical Officer with the HSE and a member of NEFIT is here and thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland this morning. Just before we get into ICU beds and all the rest, just riddle me this. If NEFIT was so worried that they recommended Level 5 at the weekend, but yesterday they level, recommended Level 3 when the numbers are worse and we know that you know people like yourself and Dr Tony Hoolan and Philip Nolan are even more concerned what does that mean, that you've bowed to political pressure? Uh, no, NEFID is charged with looking at the trends. With look, it's charged with giving the best public health advice. And it's not just public health experts who are in NEFID. We have people with backgrounds in general practice, in geriatric medicine. My own specialty is, uh, although they're as chief clinical officer as well, uh, people with a background in other specialties, infectious disease. So we look at the figures, we look at the trends. And uh, to be absolutely honest, we're very worried. Uh, we, we are seeing escalating numbers of cases. Now over 40,000 uh, confirmed cases in Ireland since our first case mm-hmm. which seemed so long ago at the end of February and this morning or last evening 172 patients in, in acute hospitals with, with COVID these numbers are rising exponentially the cases the numbers the two week instance that we talk about is now 116 that was two in July two so per 100,000 does that not prove to you that level three isn't working so far well, NEFID gives us advice to government and government have much broader consideration and that has always been the tight governance there. What I would say is that we are at a crux now, level three or level four or level five. What matters is we have a tiniest of windows now to stop this uh, uh, reaching levels where there'll be unsustained pressure on our hospitals, where it'll seep through into the most vulnerable settings, which we're already seeing in terms of outbreaks. Ten outbreaks the past week in nursing homes with 68 cases. We're catching them earlier because of a higher level of awareness, but there's no sense that the virus is any less virulent than it was back in March and April. You're aiming for 300 intensive care beds by the end of the year. You could go to 350 in a surge. Um, but some hospitals are already cancelling and postponing procedures. Are we fit to meet the surge here? Well, intensive care, we, we have been underprovided with intensive care beds for many years. Our baseline was 256 as we speak here this morning. Uh, we've now built that up uh, to 280 and we're hoping to reach 300 by the end of the year. It's, it, it, is, it, it does what it says in the box. It's when, when you say hope, how certain are you of that? Because well, every single bed matters. We have funding. It's a question of recruiting people. It's, intensive care just isn't a bed on you. It's a system of care involving trained experts of nursing, doctors, and you, you can imagine the many nurses we need for one 24-hour shift 
sort of critically ill patient. Uh, and beyond that, we want to make up those numbers that we sh- that we really should have uh, implemented in past years, go- going up to 432 at the end of 2022. So what, what I would say in answer to your question is hospitals every winter are accustomed to surges in activity with respiratory mm-hmm. disease. And it's part of their normal operations that they would curtail elective activity in order to make space in, a, in intensive care units for people who are acutely ill. So what we are likely to see in the first instance, rather than overwhelming, is individual pressure points in different areas of the country uh, where there are particular surges of activity and COVID activity, if that's but, indi- but as you say, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of staffing that goes with every single bed. Uh, one of the criticisms of the HSE winter plan and, you know, the sing- for all the claims that are being made for it is that the HSE recruitment processes are actually too slow. And a lot of what you're promising you'll deliver, you won't be able to mm. because the red tape there. Are you able to speed that up? Is that being addressed? There is red tape. Of course there's red tape in any recruitment process when you're interviewing people and you're holding interviews. But let me point out in that first surge, we rapidly redeployed thousands of people in, into testing, into tracing, into intensive. Okay. We trained 1,600 people up in elements of intensive care when we saw those scenes in Bergamo and Milan, in Milan in case we needed to lean into that surge of activity. We, we created extra intensive care, care capacity never at had the to be into it, of the rest of the health service and this is the challenge mm. of you for, the, for for you facing you for this winter so whatever your plans you know 300 by the end of the year if you do get that you hope uh, 350 if you need to uh, as i was discussing earlier with pierce Doherty, nearly 600 is what the prospectus report said we'd need in 2020 at the end of 2009 so we're clearly uh, far short isn't that the reality you have to make it through a covid winter struggling as best you can mm. and doing the very best that you know everyone in the hospitals can but the fact is there were never enough ICU beds in the first place and what the surge will mean is the Covid people may get their treatment but others won't. We, we clearly had far too low level levels of intensive care beds in this country and at 256 was our baseline as I say we're building up now and we're now committed and we had to get funding these are expensive uh, facilities we had to secure funding to build up to the plan we have now not just at the end of the year of 300 but 450 as I said by the end of 2022 um, um, so yes, uh, if to put it to answer your question, overwhelmed is a very str- a strong and emotive term. Nobody wants to see a healthcare system overwhelmed. We're in a much more difficult position in a sense than we were in March and April. In March and April, we clear the decks. We cancel right. everything. Now we have to catch up, deliver cancer care, deliver the other care that was suspended during. It's a much more difficult task okay. for us. A couple of quick points because time is running short. Um, the North South Chief Medical Officers meeting. Again, we've been hearing the difficulty for Northern Ireland. Rates twice what they are here. The difficulty is they need more money from London. Without that, can they get the situation under control or is lockdown the only way out? Certainly the levels, it's a cause for concern. Looking at the figures here in border counties in Donegal, we see a two-week incident rates of 350. To remind your listeners, it's 116 nationally. Donegal is high, but the levels contiguous across the border are alarmingly high. Uh, so yes, uh, our capacity to control, particularly around border areas, is heavily dependent on the response across the border, which all... all emphasises the need for an all-island uh, approach to this virus. Two other things, the flu vaccine shortage and also I noticed Minister Donnelly at the end of his thought contribution last night said NEFET has now uh, approved pilots for antigen testing. Can you tell us more on that briefly? In the first question, we've uh, ordered and secured uh, 1.4 million flu vaccines up from 1.2 million last year and of course we're adding... I, I know, and, and the reason I ask the question, we're all ringing our pharmacists and our GPs and you mm. know, you're n- delayed, postponed, wait. So what's the story? What we're seeing here is much 
greater levels of demand, which is good. Health, more healthcare workers want the vaccine. More people with chronic disease want the vaccine. More older people want the vaccine. That's what you want to see. In past years, we have to persuade and advertise and But will they get it in time? We will have, we are confident we will deliver the vaccine to everybody who needs that vaccine. Absolutely. And antigen? Antigen testing has been considered by the Neffet subgroup and by HICWA, who've done an assessment of it. They is that all too <coughs> slow? It, it, the antigen test is less sensitive than the PCR test. Uh, so uh, it, there is no country in the world, uh, certainly in the developed world, that is abandoning PCR testing because it is the single most sensitive test for COVID-19. But will it be part of our toolkit soon? It may well be part of an approach, a population approach, but certainly in, in terms of sensitivity, there's nothing, nothing to be the PCR test. Appreciate you joining us this morning, Dr. Colin Henry. The Chief Clinical Officer with the HSE. A planned meeting between Supreme Court Judge Seamus Wolfe and the Chief Justice Frank Clark to discuss the Susan Denham review into his attendance at a golf event in Clifton in August has been delayed now until next week. The meeting between the former Attorney General had been due to happen earlier this week. To talk us through where this controversy now goes from here, I'm joined by our legal affairs correspondent Orla O'Donnell. Orla, what is this latest development and what are the implications? Well, Mary, um, I suppose the word unprecedented is used a lot in court reporting, but every day uh, this continues seems to bring events that we've never seen before in the courts. Um, We know that three very senior judges visited Seamus Wolfe last Friday to to discuss matters with him, uh, and we understand that they conveyed the unhappiness amongst the senior judiciary about how uh, Judge Wolfe had dealt with this whole issue. Now, these are very senior judges, uh, Judges Donal O'Donnell and Isul Tamali, who are on the Supreme Court, and Judge uh, George Birmingham, who is President of the Court of Appeal. Uh, we understand that Mr Justice Wolfe was uh, shocked or surprised at what they had to say and the depth of unhappiness communicated to him. After that, there was due to be a meeting on Monday with the Chief Justice. Uh, that was postponed after a request from uh, Mr Justice Wolfe for personal reasons. It was postponed to Friday. However, yesterday evening, the Chief Justice said he had received another request to postpone the meeting until next week for medical reasons. So it has now been postponed to Tuesday. And the Chief Justice said he had emphasised to Mr Justice Wolfe the urgency of bringing this process forward. I've heard you report that uh, Mr Justice Wolfe, the newly appointed Supreme Court judge, has not been listed for for any hearings so far. Um, So what does this all mean? Yes, that's true. Um, There was a list posted um, of the Supreme Court listings for this week. This is the first official week of the legal term. Uh, And Mr Justice Wolfe was on a number uh, of panels to deal with a number of issues. An updated list then did not include his name on the panels of judges to hear cases. Uh, So the answer to what it means is we just don't know as of yet um, and why this meeting has again been postponed. It wouldn't be surprising if Seamus Wolfe was experiencing the stress that anyone would uh, being at the centre of such a controversy, a controversy that's allowing the Supreme Court to be conveyed in a negative way. It's clear from the transcript of the Denim Review that he feels very seriously wronged. Um, He has approached this in a very legalistic way and he successfully demonstrated to Ms Justice Denham that he didn't breach any regulations, he shouldn't have to resign. He feels, we can see from the transcript, that the story was hyped up by the media who suggested the dinner breached regulations and suggested he says that those who attended did so knowing the regulations were being breached something of course he says was false Uh, but in the transcript there also seems to be a lack of awareness of the non-legal side of this the the moral issue or the perception issue Um, should he have been at such an event at all and even more particularly in the middle of a pandemic Uh, and as one senior counsel put it to me yesterday the review commissioned by by the Supreme Court um, Ms Ms. Justice Denham's review has no legal consequences Uh, so this senior counsel was suggesting that 
that it might have been better for Mr Justice Wolf to, instead of approaching it legally, to deal with this perceived moral culpability issue first, to perhaps have offered an apology for the way the event was perceived and the perception that the dinner created, that there was one rule for judges and politicians and another for the rest of us. So what happens next then? Again, <laughs> we don't know yet. Um, as I say, he is uh, scheduled to meet the Chief Justice on Tuesday as part of the resolution process that was recommended by Ms Justice Denham. Now, if that meeting doesn't happen on Tuesday, both sides could be in a very difficult situation. Uh, the court can't force Judge Wolf to do anything. The resolution process doesn't have any legal standing, but it does seem that they would like or require his consent or agreement to any apology or uh, reprimand or statement that they want to issue. Uh, but if he doesn't consent, um, as some legal academics have been pointing out the route out of this is very unclear. Does the Supreme Court issue further statements, which again has been quite an unusual uh, factor in all of this? Does it issue a reprimand without uh, Judge Wolf's consent? Uh, does he begin work as a Supreme Court judge, even given the strength of feeling that he has now been told of by his colleagues? Uh, does he wait at home for some kind of resolution? Or does the nuclear option, as it's ha- been described, of some form of court case happened, happen? Um, If the Judicial Council had been established, the the Complaints Committee, if it had been established earlier, there would be now a process in place and crucially both sides would know what was expected of them and the limits of what is expected of them. Uh, That legislation, as you know, has taken a long time to come in. Uh, In relation to judicial conduct, the legislation has still not commenced because guidelines are being prepared and so the consequences of that delay are now in full view during this current crisis. Orlo O'Donnell, thank you very much for that update. We're going next to the United States, where there's also been big news overnight. The president, Donald Trump, has returned to the White House after being released from hospital where he was being treated for COVID-19. He removed his mask and posed for photos on the White House balcony before posting a video in which he told people not to be afraid of the virus because they will beat it. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, has been bringing me through last night's sequence of events. Last night, Donald Trump's doctors briefed the media and said he was continuing to improve and would be discharged from hospital. They said they were cautiously optimistic, but that the president was not entirely out of the woods yet and that they were in uncharted territory. Now, doctors avoided questions last night about whether there was any damage to Donald Trump's lungs and questions about when his last negative test was. That is, of course, significant because it would tell us how long he has actually had the virus. What we saw next really was a made-for-TV moment from the master of reality TV. Donald Trump walked out of Walter Reed Hospital and boarded the presidential helicopter Marine One. He then flew 10 minutes across Washington and arrived at the White House. He ascended the steps and then he stopped on the Truman balcony. He removed his mask, posed for photos, waving, saluting, giving the thumbs up. He then went inside the White House and recorded a video which he posted to social media. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went. I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. And I know there's a risk. There's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune. I don't know. 
but don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there, be careful. Despite the fact, Brian, that the White House now seems to be a reservoir of illness, it's clear from what he was saying there that Donald Trump is going to try and use all of this to his advantage. Absolutely, Rachel, and you make a good point. He returned to a White House that has more and more and more people testing positive, more members of Donald Trump's inner circle. But absolutely, he is spinning this around, taking a weakness, trying to turn turn it into a strength. And there's no doubt he will use this as part of his campaign. Look at me. I beat the virus. I'm strong. I'm tough. It's not that big of a deal. In fact, after he was released from hospital last night, his team posted a campaign-style video with dramatic music showing Marine One landing on the South Lawn and Donald Trump returning triumphant to the White House. And I think we're going to hear this I may be immune immunity line a lot over the coming weeks, probably as an explanation if we see Donald Trump returning to the campaign trail in the very near future. But of course, there's a danger in all of this, because usually people are seven to ten days into this illness before they develop serious symptoms. Technically, We don't know how long Donald Trump has had this virus. We know when he tested positive, which was late Thursday night, early Friday morning, but we don't know when his last negative test was before that, the White House refusing to release that information. But all this narrative that the president is a warrior, a fighter, that he's taken on Washington, he's taken on the Democrats, he's taken on the media, now he's taking on the coronavirus, this all plays extremely well to his base. And I spoke to some of Donald Trump's supporters who had gathered outside the hospital last night. Needless to say, they they were delighted that Donald Trump was being discharged and was returning to the White House. I'm happy that he was doing well and happy that he only had mild symptoms and he's going back to work or maybe he never really stopped working. He said, there's nothing to be afraid of. Don't let it dominate your life. Do you think there's a danger that he's downplaying the virus a little? I, I don't. I know that I know enough to be able to judge for myself what precautions are prudent to take. I don't want my government dictating things like a national mask mandate. This is going to show us that it's not as serious as it is. We have to give up our entire lives for a virus or someone as myself that believes in God. I don't think he would do that to us. Brian, what's the reaction been from Joe Biden and from his camp? Well, Joe Biden is continuing to campaign and is continuing to lead in the opinion polls. He is being tested for the coronavirus regularly, and his campaign has promised to keep the public updated on all of those test results. Now, Joe Biden took part in an NBC News town hall event last night in Miami, Florida. He said he was glad to see that the president seemed to be doing well, but he added that he hoped he would communicate a message to the American people that masks matter. The Democratic candidate said he had considered reaching out to President Trump after he tested positive, but he was advised that this would be intrusive. Brian O'Donovan in Washington. The motor industry is warning that consumers could face a hike in car prices if proposals from the government's tax strategy group come to pass. The price of an average family car could jump from anywhere from a few hundred euro to 2,000 euro. The sector says the measures which are aimed at pushing people out of more polluting cars could have the opposite effect. Our consumer affairs correspondent Fran McNulty is with us now. Fran, these proposed increases in VRT are about encouraging people into electric and more environmentally friendly cars. So why is the industry saying that may not be the outcome? Because in short, Gavin, they say there aren't enough electric models around yet, so consumers won't have the choice they need. They won't also be able to go and shop for second-hand cars because there's a very limited range of second-hand electric cars available. 
And they're saying that newer petrol and diesel cars are in fact cleaner uh, than cars that are four or five years old, as are hybrids. And graduating people up to them will in turn help people move towards electric cars in time and it keeps the industry moving. But of course, Gavin, the industry wants to sell more cars. That's what the car industry is there to do. But when you look at it, electric car choices are limited. They're quite expensive. Uh, they, there's The network of charging points which you we need is way behind what it should be. Now, there is assistance to buy them, it has to be said, but more people than ever before are, chewing, are choosing to do so. One of them is Davin Kielty. He collected his new Volkswagen ID3. That's a new electric car model in recent days. So why did he make the move? I've had diesel and petrol over the years. Uh, the last few years have been diesel and I suppose, like as the saying goes, it's environmental changes are coming and it's the future so embrace it now when it was time to change the car i didn't want to go hybrid i said there's no point going halfway go full hog or, or stay where i am so i decided to embrace it and go electric the incentives are there at the moment and they may not be there in 12 months time or six months time so the government have a good incentive for to go electric at the moment with the vrt and the, the grants and even the grants for the charger so they won't last forever they'll have to probably cut them back but embrace it as, 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 a, as a cause at the moment. There's difficult times for everything, but we have to try and keep, keep everything as normal as possible and keep moving. Now, as Davin Keelty was collecting his new ID3 and driving away in perfect silence, because one of the strange things about electric cars, he did so having availed of a government grant. And that's why he bought the car, as you heard him saying. That's why many people are moving towards electric, because the running costs and the servicing costs are extremely low as well. But if you're not willing to do that, and if you want to stay with petrol or diesel under these proposals, uh, just to give some examples, Gavin, an average a Kia Sportage, a very popular car, could go up by 933 uh, euro. A Nissan Qashqai by as much as 1,400 euro. A Skoda Karak by over 2,000 euro. Now, the motor industry, like every other industry, doesn't like anything that will make consumers think twice. So an increase isn't welcome. And these proposals are about encouraging people into electric cars. And many people will say this morning, how can that be a bad thing? Frank Kelly is dealer principal at Sheehy Motors in Nace in County Kildare. We already have highly taxed vehicles. Uh, VRT is not is not applicable in the UK. Every time VRT goes up, the sale of cars go down, the market goes down. Once our market goes down, it's very dangerous for us. It's going to take another decade or so for us to have the full range of cars in electric. So going forward, we need a blended mix. We need clean petrol and diesel engines, we need hybrids and we need electric cars. The Climate Action Plan that came out last year asserted that there would be 840,000 electric cars on the road by 2030. Remember that in 2008 it was asserted that we had 250,000 electric cars on the road by 2020. We've achieved about 5% of that at the moment. So we just need to keep realistic about where we're going with electric vehicles. What needs to change so far to address that or, or in general help what is a, a distressed market? We actually need, we need reductions. We don't need increases. We need reductions. We need to get people into cleaner cars. Um, the average car today is 28% cleaner than a three to four year old car so we need to get the oldest cars off the road and get people to keep upgrading so we need their three or four year old cars into new cars and then people out of eight, nine, ten year old cars into the three or four year old cars. We have one of the oldest car parks in Europe. Because we have VRT and VRT is a regressive tax it's held us back. The average car at the moment is taxed to the tune of about ten and a half thousand euro between VAT and VRT. So if that goes up between two and four thousand euro, you're up to fifteen thousand euro. Our consumers are going to pay for an average family car, whereas in the UK, hundred miles up the north of Ireland, they're going to pay an average of five thousand pounds tax. So it's a massive difference. And once cars go up, our car market goes down. 
Brian, it is something that might concern car buyers, but it's obviously an industry lobbying against change. How big are they saying the impact could be? They're saying that any increase in VRT, Gavin, could cost jobs. Now, it is a sector which is having a bad year. Sales are way behind what they should be uh, at the height of the pandemic. Sales virtually ground to a halt. They have recovered somewhat in September. Most people listening this morning will be saying, buy a new car. It's the last thing I think of doing at the moment, the way the economy is. But cars are selling again because people are changing. They want to upgrade. It's something that some people just like to do. And anything which hikes prices is only going to make things worse uh, for the industry. And when it says that, it looks back to the last big VRT change and the impact of that. Emma Mitchell from the Society of the uh, Irish Motor Industry says the time for increased VRT is not now. The last time we saw such a taxation change was 2008 and that coincided with the recession. As a result of that, um, we saw thousands of jobs lost and local family businesses close. So really, we are now concerned with Brexit, um, with Covid, uh, the industry has um, had um, uh, concurrently over the last four years falling car sales. So given that climate, given this environment, we don't feel that such a model should be introduced. Um, or we fear that you know, we could see a similar story with, jobs and, with job losses and business closures. In real terms, we could see car sales fall um, even more dramatically. They are currently at recession levels. So we expect this year to finish at about 84,000. And we would see a similar market if this model was introduced for next year. And simply, um, the industry is trying to hold on to jobs as it is, and we would be really fearful over job losses for, for the coming year and local businesses, how they will be sustained. That's Emma Mitchell from the Society of the Motor Industry, ending that report by Fran McNulty. Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan said yesterday he's even more worried now about COVID rates in Ireland than he was at the weekend when Neffet recommended level five restrictions to the government in a letter sent on Sunday. And of course, that letter came much to the annoyance of some ministers. But how much of a bolt from the blue was that Neffet letter? Here's Tony Houlihan's answer to Irish Times journalist Jack Horgan-Jones about his discussions before and after the Neffet meeting last Sunday. We, we just discussed my concerns, the concerns I shared with him uh, of the conversations that I'd had with a range of members of NEFIT over the course of the preceding 24 hours uh, and the fact that I was going to hold a meeting of the NEFIT and would brief him afterwards, which is exactly what happened. So to be clear, he didn't indicate that no. level four would be unacceptable to government? He didn't set out parameters within which we would conduct our considerations. And conversely, did you indicate to him at all that you felt that we could end up in a situation where you would be recommending a level five at the end of that day? I, I was very clear, and I wouldn't preempt the outcome of a discussion, but I was very clear about the level of concern that I have and had. And if anything, Jack, uh, the level of concern that I had then is, is less than the level of concern I had now. For the, I have now. Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan talking about his interactions with Health Minister Stephen Donnelly last Sunday. Joining us now, the Social Democrats co-leader, uh, Roisin Shortall. Roisin Shortall, I'm just going to run through that timeline again um, and bearing in mind uh, what Paul Cunningham said to us earlier, that there was uh, knowledge in the government that Neffet was meeting uh, on Sunday. That knowledge was there on Saturday. Stephen Donnelly told me Hall Martin on Saturday Neffet would be meeting. Uh, then, as we've heard Tony Houlihan there, he had a phone call with the Health Minister beforehand 
and afterwards. We understand from Paul earlier there was a text to the Taoiseach which was forwarded to the Taunishta and to Eamon Ryan and there was also a conversation between uh, the Taunishta and the Taoiseach around the time that this all emerged in the media, uh, which again the Chief Medical Officer said wasn't helpful. So Social Democrats co-leader Roisin Shorthall, what questions do you have arising out of all of that? Well, Anya, it's quite clear now that contrary to what we've been led to believe by government, that uh, the Minister for Health and the, the Taoiseach were kept informed throughout the weekend. Uh, you know, all of the signals were there that it was a serious situation. Uh, the Chief Medical Officer returned to work two days early. Um, he contacted the Minister on Saturday, informed him of what he had found in relation to the growing evidence, um, told him about how serious the situation was and that an unscheduled meeting of NEFET was to be called on Sunday. The CMO then contacted the Minister again on Sunday morning and again in, on Sunday evening after the, the meeting. Now, you know, it's very hard to understand how all of those very clear signals were not taken. I mean, it, it, surely the question was, well, what are the implications of this uh, deteriorating situation? Um, like, it, the so are you saying, Roisin Shortall, it's not the chief medical officer's fault for not uh, telling the health minister uh, before that NEFET meeting that he was considering going to level five because after all it's quite a jump from level three it was their fault for not asking was he considering going to level five but that never crossed their minds because they had a plan they just launched with all the different levels and if you go at level three you go next to level four I presume. Well, look, it's, it was very clear that the situation was very grave and clearly there was a need for a response by government. And the obvious thing to do was for government to engage with uh, NEFET on Sunday evening after they came to their decision and their recommendation. Uh, so rather than that happening, for some reason, the letter was leaked. That was extremely da- damaging. Uh, it, it drove a wedge between NEFET and government and then inexplicably on Monday evening, the Taunish that went on the Clare Byrne show, uh, it would seem to deliberately undermine the chief medical officer. And we now are in a situation where serious time has been lost. Uh, there's been division between NEFET and the government. Uh, and uh, the focus has been taken away from where it should be, which is on tackling the virus. Rather, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what we need to concentrate on now. Government has, you know, shown itself to be pretty incompetent over recent days. It has failed to actually respond to the growing situation that NEFET has set out. And, you know, we they now have, are they in a situation... They adopted level three restrictions for the rest of the country. Well, look... They've brought in Operation Fanacht. They're considering the fines and other measures. Anya, the situation was particularly serious in Donegal and also in Dublin. They have taken no action that was going to change the situation there. This should not be a matter that if the there is, is political... In Sorry, Roisin, to, to cut across you, but the rate is slowing in Dublin. Sorry, it? It, it was said last night at the briefing that that is not actually the case now. Um, it, it's the, the, the reproduction number is still above one and it is not going to reduce until that number comes down below one. Now, that is the situation and steps need to be taken to drive down the virus. So that's what the focus should be on now and what the concentration should be on. And what the Social Democrats have been doing over 
you know, several weeks now, is calling for a cross-party approach to this. Uh, the, the response to the virus should not be a matter for political uh, dispute. There should be an agreed approach to tackling the virus based on the best evidence. And, you know, there are a number of things that must be done. We must be targeting those high-risk areas, nursing homes, meat factories, direct provision. We have to put in safeguards in our airports and our ports because there is no monitoring going on at all of travel. We need to be working closely with the, the uh, authorities in Northern Ireland. That hasn't happened to date. It, all of these things now that the government is talking about doing, uh, they're very late in the day. So we need to put the focus back on where it should be. And that is ensuring that we bring people with us to drive down the virus and to break those chains and of transmission. And does that mean, Roisin Shortall? going to level five as the chief medical officer recommended which is not probably even if you know a majority of people in the country supported that and it seems there is support for stronger measures and opinion polls probably not not a majority of the politicians in Leinster House because you know everybody's worried just tarnished to talking about the hundreds of thousands of people who would have lost their job if we did go to level five but however unpalatable is that what we need to do? All of those, all of those um, effects need to be taken into consideration. It is not only a, a public health consideration. There are all of those other aspects of life. But there is also the, the fact that what the CMO seems to be indicating at this stage is that if we take direct action now, strict action in relation to um, driving down the virus, that you know we we can succeed over the next three, four, five weeks. And last night, the CMO put a particular focus on Christmas. Um, At this stage, you know, people are very concerned about what kind of Christmas uh, everyone is going to have. But there is certainly a very strong argument for taking uh, strong action at this point so that we can, in a month's time, in six weeks' time, get to a better place. But the overall point I would make, Anya, is that we don't need political division on this. All of The government should be involving all of the other political parties. We need to set out a very clear strategy, which is solely about driving down the virus so that we can return to some level of normality. Okay. And we must bear in mind that you know business concerns and health concerns are two sides of the same coin. And there is no point in right. pretending that we can continue and that it, that won't do damage to business Two and more to social life. Then. How, what should government do today in terms of dealing with answering the questions? There'll be lots of shouts of, you know, statements from St- um, the, Steve, Stephen Donnelly and from the Thornish and from the Taoiseach. What should happen there? Well, I, I think Stephen Donnelly needs to make a statement, there's no doubt about that, and set out very clearly um, what he knew uh, and why he didn't take the appropriate action over the weekend. I also think the Taunish then needs to make a statement, at a minimum to apologise to the, the Chief Medical Officer. But, you know, it, it seems that the Taunish is playing very dangerous political games and they've been entirely unhelpful and I think he was extremely irresponsible on well, Monday night. Well, he's doing the I, More think, importantly, I think, at noon today. And one Final question. Yeah, Sorry, Roshin, it's just time is pre- yeah. pressing. Um, are you surprised, by the way, um, the other issue that happened in Leinster House, of course, yesterday, uh, the government amendment on the Gino Kenny's Dying with Dignity Bill? Are you, dis- are you surprised that the government amendment uh, was defeated? And what do you think happens next? 
Well, there was clearly, um, I think most parties had a free vote on that and people voted uh, in the way way they felt was right. Um, And I think a lot of people believed that the government was potentially, you know, kicking this issue down the road in a committee and setting a 12-month timescale. And the majority view was it would be better if the bill passed second stage and went into a committee so that there could be, you know, extensive pre-legislative scrutiny of that bill and that we could take the same kind of approach that was taken with the the repeal the eighth amendment uh, in in relation to the special committee, that uh, we take the evidence, hear all the expert advice and then come to an agreed decision. So I think that's the right thing. But I just want to make the final point in relation to the virus. I think the Taoiseach now has to pick up the phone, contact the other party leaders, do what we've been asking him to do for several weeks and bring people with him at a political level because we all have to be on the same message for the public to bring the public with us. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. Social Democrats co-leader Roisin Shorthold. A rare fern, the rarest in Europe, has been discovered in Killarney in County Kerry. The Stenogrammatus myosauroids was found in the National Park there. On the line is the man who made that discovery, Rory Hodd, who's an ecologist and botanist with the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. Rory, thanks a million for joining us this morning and congratulations on the discovery. Tell us about it. Thank you. Yes. So, um, so yeah. So this fern, it, it, it's basically it's a uh, it's a species that's previously only been found in um, in tropical cloud forest in Jamaica, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic. And um, so I was, you know, out um, exploring the woodlands in the Klan National Park um, with a group, and then I f- spotted this small fern growing on a rock, and it was something that I'd never really seen before. So, you know, I was kind of really surprised to see this. So, um. So I you know, collected a specimen, sent it to um, Dr. Fred Rumsey in the Natural History Museum in London, who's the expert on these ferns, and then he got it confirmed then um, by you know in uh, by sending it to uh, to uh, experts in in America on these species specifically as this um, species Tenogrammatus myosoroides, this tropical um, fern species. And when you first came across it on that rock, did you have a, an inkling as to what it might be, or were you totally confused? I was totally confused, really, because I've, you know, I, but I grew up next to, I grew up next to the National Park, so I really know it really well. I've spent, you know, hours and hours exploring the woodlands and that kind of um, habitat. So, and yeah, I know most of the plants that grow there. So I saw this, this species and said, okay, this is something that's, you know, never been seen in Ireland before. So I was, you know, I knew it was a fern, but beyond that, I had, you know, really no idea at all. So... I kind of you know, had an idea then that this was something quite quite significant. How significant a discovery is this? Well, yes, as I said, this species hasn't been seen before in Europe, and also none, no related species have been found before in Europe. So, um, so it's about you know seven thousand kilometres from the nearest occurrence of the species. So it's extremely rare to find a new species to Europe, and even rarer to find you know a whole new group of species um, to the whole you know, to the whole continent as such. Mm, and have you any idea how it got there? How it travelled to Killarney? Well, yes. Yeah, so that's a it sounds really far-fetched but the most likely thing is that it's well this species has tiny spores so they're really microscopic and it grows in cloud forests at quite high altitude so the so the spores would have been you know lifted you know the most likely thing is the spores would have traveled in you know the air currents you know all the way across the ocean and um 
and then been deposited, you know, in just happened to land in the exact right place where the conditions are right for the species to grow. So it's, you know, it sounds like you yeah. know, something, you know, very unlikely, but it's that's the most likely thing. Doesn't happen. it? I mean, it, it, it's the way you describe it there. I mean, it, it, it's a complete Goldilocks happening, isn't it? That, that it should come all of that way and land in a place that was just right. Exactly, exactly. So in theory, there's probably you know, loads of these spores coming across from various different species and they just land and you know, 99.999% of them wouldn't land in the right place and just wouldn't, nothing would ever happen. So you wouldn't even know they ever landed there. And also, I suppose the other thing is that it just hap- just, I happened to look at that rock and know that it was something different and then you know, it was the right person being in the mm. right place where the fern landed. Yeah, it's an astonishing one, all right. Listen, Rory, thanks a million for talking to us. Rory Hodd there, ecologist and botanist on that discovery in the Killarney National Park. 100 million in grants, VAT cuts, even changing school holidays. These are some of the proposals in a new report to protect the tourism sector and keep it afloat during COVID-19. Now, this report was compiled by the Tourism Recovery Task Force. Its chairperson is Ruth Andrews. Good morning. Good morning, Mary. Now, you have a a three-year strategy here. It's about long-term recovery for the tourism industry. But but right now, the sector is really on the floor and it is a a case of trying to hold on. So you have to break this into, into three parts, really. What is the immediate help that you can offer the sector to hold on? Well, you're absolutely right, Mary. And in developing uh, this long-term recovery plan, it became very apparent very quickly that uh, it is important that we look to the survival phase first and foremost to ensure that uh, we can sustain businesses through the uh, more difficult period in the next six months so that we have the key strategic assets in place to strengthen the pace of recovery for tourism uh, when it comes and it will come at pace. Uh, And you're right, I suppose, looking to the survival measures that we have recommended uh, to the Minister, one of the first ones is a 120 million business continuity grant. um, And that, I suppose, is to assist businesses, particularly those that have been greatly impacted due to the national lockdown initially, but also the ongoing uh, restrictions imposed to protect public public health. And have we seen uh, those have again been very strongly impacting on tourism over the last 12 hours and will do for the next month or so. So indeed we uh, need business continuity to protect key strategic assets and supply chains. There are businesses that just simply haven't been able to pivot towards domestic tourism and they have a great dependency on international tourism where 75% of our income comes from uh, within tourism. So those are businesses such as car hire, chauffeur drive, tour operators and visitor attractions. Businesses that have had an 80 to 90% fall off in their 2020 business. So they are strategic assets and we need to make sure that those very viable businesses that are currently vulnerable are supported in the short term. And and 100 million is an awful lot of money, but is 100 million, when you spread it across the range Mm -hmm. you're just talking about, 100 million doesn't sound an awful lot of money for a sector that at the moment, uh, you know, is, is trying to keep the door open. 
Sure. Well, it's only one of the survival measures that we've put forward. We've also put forward 150 million in a specific loan scheme uh, to be jointly administered by Fulcha Ireland and the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund. And again, it's been very clear that tourism businesses need to have tailored liquidity solutions to meet the unique challenges that the tourism businesses are facing. And also we've put forward uh, um, the extension of a a COVID adaptation fund. Uh, The Minister very successfully in the July stimulus uh, managed to to put to get funding towards an adaptation fund. But as we now move in the context of living with COVID and the living with COVID plan, there will be a requirement for further adaptation to businesses to help them survive. What's, What's an adaptation fund? Well, an adaptation fund would help to support businesses to actually uh, modify their businesses to be able to uh, facilitate and service um, customers. So, for instance, one of the things that that we would suggest uh, needs to be considered supporting them to increase, let's say, outdoor space, uh, particularly for the likes of the restaurant and hospitality sector, um, where they are going to need to move towards that um, and not just over the winter period, but as we move into the spring next year. Do you think, Ruth, and you know this sector intimately, Mm. do you think it's realistic that that, um, uh, the the tourism, the hospitality sector can really function in an outdoor setting in December, in January, in February? It's going to be difficult for sure, but as we all know, living with COVID is going to go beyond the winter period and we're looking into uh, the first six months of next year. So we need those businesses to be ready and to have adapted so that they can actually uh, move and work in an environment whereby we're living with COVID, but also being able to run our businesses. Now, I've no doubt you have an eye to the budget when you're talking about (laughs) grant schemes and loan schemes and cuts to VAT. But what is this about perhaps changing the school holiday period? Yes, indeed. Well, that's that's one of, I suppose, our uh, medium term measures. And and again, as we're all aware, we're going to be very dependent on our domestic holiday market. Um, And and we we would look not only to depend on it during a COVID environment, but in the longer term, there's real potential to increase our staycation market and the domestic market here. And one of the things that we've looked at is uh, where in other countries, they have changed the school holidays, particularly around periods of midterm, for instance, where you can spread the school holidays across regions, which means you're, you're extending the capacity across peak periods. Um, and as they've done in the likes of the UK and in across Europe, indeed, um, this has very positively impacted on both the sector's occupancy and pricing. So do, do, you mean, do you mean that different counties would have different schools in different counties would have different midterm breaks, for example? Well, certainly uh, in terms of different counties or different regions across the country, that they would look to change uh, certain midterm breaks to spread them across a longer period. Ruth Andrews, chairperson of the Tourism Recovery Task Force, thank you very much for joining us. Now, here's another festival that's coping in a time of COVID. The annual Wexford Festival Opera takes place this weekend. No live audience, but with all performances streamed online. And the organisers have been rethinking the festival offering during a pandemic, as our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley reports. I knew that we could do it and we would do it. 
and we should do it, actually. Artistic director of Wexford Festival Opera, Rosetta Kuki, knew that putting on a festival this year would be difficult, but she was determined to rise to the challenge. Because of COVID-19, all of the work this year will be available online, while one of the operas was also written online. It's What Happened to Lucretia by Andrew Sinnott. You made me come here tonight. Well, now here I am. So this is a, a modern reimagining of the uh, Shakespeare poem, The Rape of Lucretia, and uh, it's uh, set in London in 2018 and the characters are Irish. In the months where we were locked down in, in, the, in our houses, uh, far from each other, so exchanging only by Zoom, by, you know, this kind of device. And then suddenly we decided, why don't we, since this will be streamed, why don't we do something really special for that? And so the opera was designed with three different endings. You made me come here tonight. Well, now here I am. The audience will be able, will be able to actually ultimately choose which version of the opera they want to, to watch. I mean, there's three, if there are three endings, three very different fields, I suppose there are three operas in a sense, and so people will be able to decide whether um, they're in the mood, a bit like uh, a streaming service, with bit, uh, whether they want a comedy tonight or whether they want a drama or whatever it is. Carrick Fergus native Sarah Richmond stars as Lucretia, an amazing opportunity, she says, in a year where most of her other work disappeared. I think I had 15 round trips cancelled. I was due to go on tour in England. And then, you know, it was just cancel, cancel this, cancel that. Teaching had to stop. And then this was my, my first substantial contract of, of real length. It's... It was crazy, you know, it's the silver lining. Sarah also took part in what is known as The Factory, a professional development academy for Irish and Irish-based singers. And people had to fly in in advance of that to quarantine uh, beforehand and then we all joined and we all became a bubble. So it, it was bizarre. I mean, we're, we're still maintaining distance and we're still wearing masks when we're walking around the theatre and that kind of thing. But when we're on stage performing, we take our masks off and, and we're singing together. Anyone who has been down to the Wexford Festival will know that this place, normally this time of the year, is just full of all kinds of different people, in and out, and you meet people, new, new people every single day, and there's visitors to the, to the town from all over the world. I mean, it's a, an extraordinary kind of um, collection of, of the most diverse people, I suppose. But uh, uh, this time, we just, it's just us. I call this festival, Waiting for Shakespeare, the festival in the air. In the air, like the radio is in the air, like the, the music is in the air, you know, uh, like the arts has to be in the air, just to arrive in every houses.
That beautiful. It's just awful the way that COVID has robbed us of not just hugs, but singing as well. Wexford Festival Opera can be viewed this year on www.rte.ie forward slash culture. And you can hear it on RTE Lyric FM. All of the performances are free of charge. That report from Sinead Crowley. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.